0: And it's something that um, set off and precipitated a lot of thought I had given about death at the time. And I just want to take a few moments and share that with you. Let me tell you the, the, the major thought I walked away with when I walked away from that funeral. I became fully convinced of this truth. If I do not view life as God views life. If I do not view life as God views life, if I'm a Christian or not, life is going to make me bitter and angry. If I do not view life as God views life, if I don't see it through God's perspective, if I don't understand the realities that are passing in front of me as God views them, I will only end up bitter and angry. My brother and I were standing out the graveyard together and he said, we were looking, we, I told you being out there at the graveyard, and he said, it is a bitter pill. As a non-believer, I think that's probably a pretty good sum up. And as I look at God's commitment to me in tribulation, because God's commitment to me in stretching me for heaven, and God's commitment to me in the disaster of death and all the pain that goes with it, if I don't grasp God's view of my wife, and God's view of my family, my kids, and God's view of money, and God's view of the job, and if I pursue my own path, I assure you, I'm only going to end up bitter and angry at the end of life. That's all life's going to bring me. So I thought it was worthwhile to try to get God's view on death. So, okay, look, I'll sum up a lot of thoughts and stuff I've done on just God's view of death. So what I want to share with you today, the objective of this talk, is to try to get God's view of death. How does He view death? Let's cut out all the culture and all the tradition, and let's say, what does He say about death? That's what I meant. That's the objective of this little discussion. I want to say to you that being a, uh, a, uh, a lay philosopher who enjoys tinkering around with philosophy, I would first make you the argument of why it's important even to study death. And I would say to you that if I looked at life and read all the great philosophers, that they'd have one theme that ran through it, and that is the two things, excuse me, That is to know myself and why I'm here. And if you read philosophers, that is the argument that goes on and on. Who am I and what in the world am I doing here? Who am I and what in the world am I doing here? But I want to say to you, as I've reviewed those numerous, numerous times, I would like to take the liberty, as I've read some of the great philosophers, the arguments, they really argue three arguments. Here are the three arguments they really argue to prove the first two. There's a more foundational argument. They say, what happens to me? Is there a life after death? That's their first argument. And if there's a life after death, what is truth? And if there's truth, is there anything worth giving my life to? That is the three arguments that, uh, that any philosopher, Voltaire, any guy goes through, if you read them, that's basically the three arguments I do. And I want to even go further with you and suggest to you how you answer the first one will determine how you live your life. Is there a life after death? Now, if I choose to believe there is nothing after death, that death is just an abyss, that we just go into nothingness, if there is no consequences to my life, that's all just nothing going on after that, then guys, the conclusion I must arrive at, that life is a dirty, rotten joke, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I'm going to die, pull the throttle out, and let her rip. Get all I can and steal all I can. Get after it. If there is no life after death, that is the only conclusion you can come to. Now, philosophers have tried to argue that if there's no life after death, there's still a value in morals. And I want to say to you, that's a bunch of bunk. You cannot argue that case. That argument breaks down. It will not stand the test of discussion. You take away consequences in my life, and it only leaves me to let them rip, because there's nothing out there holding me back. The second reason I'd like to convince you that is true is the fact that Paul argues that in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? Are you with me? He said if Jesus was not resurrected then I won't be resurrected. And if Jesus was not resurrected, then all my faith is in vain. And if my faith is in vain, above all people, I am to be pitied. That's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. He says the linchpin, the cornerstone to the entire Christian belief, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, two truths I want us to glean out of that. It's true. It is the linchpin. The resurrection on Sunday confirmed what Jesus did on Friday was true. He's not resurrected on Sunday, forget Friday. The resurrection on Sunday confirmed Friday. That's what Paul's argument was. Dying on the cross and everything loses its total meaning if Jesus is not resurrected. That is the consummate act that confirms what Jesus did for us. It brings to fruition the total, the totality of our existence. The secondly, I've had guys argue with me. I've heard this, I bet you everybody's heard this argument. Well, even if Christianity is not right, if even if Christ is not real, Christianity is a better life to live. Paul didn't agree with him. I don't tell you I don't agree with him. If Christ was not resurrected, you're to be pitied. You're fools. You're chasing nothingness. You're running after a vapor. That's Paul's argument. And in my fifty years of life, I think he's right on the nose. And the issue is how I view what happens with me after death will determine how I will live my life. It's an important question. Because if there is life after death, and if there's a God that runs that life after death, and if I'm going to spend eternity in that life after death, what only strikes me, it behooves me to figure out what's on that guy's mind, because I'm going to spend a lot of time with him, and this is not the main event, and I better be about figuring out how I'm going to get along with him when I get over this. And so how you figure out what's going to happen to you in your life after death is your linchpin to everything you will do. It will drive the consequences of your actions. Now, death is only defined as the separation of the soul and the body or the body from God. But what happens? What does God say then? So what the rest of this discussion is, there's some believers and unbelievers in this room, and the rest of this discussion, I'm going to focus on what God says about death. Okay? And I'm not... There's other philosophies and other strategies, but I want to tell you, I come to the conclusion we're going to assume in the scriptures that life, there is life after death God is running it and here's what God has said about it when the Christian dies he is instantly with Jesus alright dead in the body present with the Lord absent from the body present with the Lord Jesus said on the cross to the, to the man what? today you will be with me in paradise that moment you're going to be with me when we die we will be with Jesus the guy who died, that Charles was talking about, is seeing Jesus and working with him today. After that, we'll be raptured, our new body. First Thessalonians talking about the fact that when Jesus comes back, they'll rapture up the new bodies, and we'll have the new bodies. We'll be spiritually with Jesus the time, until the time of the rapture, and then after the rapture, we'll serve a thousand years with Jesus on the earth in the millennium, and then God will have the great judgment, the white throne judgment, of which we're going to be brought together as Christians, and he's going to say, You guys... Pass to the right. You're the good guys. And by the way, we're going to sit here, take all your, good, all your deeds, and we're going to pass them through the fire. And the things that don't burn up are going to be your rewards. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. talks about the fact we're going to test them. And those things are of value to God. We're going to hand those back to you in rewards. And then you're going to come with me to an eternity. And we're going to have a new hope. And a new life. And a new earth. And a hope fulfilled that we'll be with God forever. And a joyous, great occasion. We die, we're with Jesus, we have all the joys of heaven, we get a raptured body, we're judged, we get our rewards, we go off and have a new, a new heaven. What a fantastic promise by God. Let's talk about the unbelievers. When he dies, he goes to hell. Instantly. He's in hell. He goes through the first death, only to come after the judgment, when we come back into judgment, and he's judged, wanting on the book of life, and he dies his second death, as pointed out. And he goes into an eternity of hell, no hope. In Luke 16 is the, quote, parable, unquote, of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I want to suggest to you that the theologians do not think that's a parable. Now, why? And I'm going to give you their argument. The reason it is not a parable is because Jesus calls the person by name. In no other parable does Jesus call anybody by name. It's a rich ruler or something like this. But here it's a rich ruler and a ba- beggar named Lazarus. It is by name. So it is not a parable, but it is an observation of something Jesus saw happening. Right? It is not a parable. You can view it as a story that Jesus is telling, something that he witnessed. And the great theologians do not, they declare that is not a parable. Okay? And the argument is, that if that is a parable, then Nicodemus is a parable. And Nicodemus is a parable, then Peter is a parable. And you can take all of the Bible and parabolize the whole thing. The minute Jesus calls anybody by name, that it comes outside the context of a parable... And gets into an actual story he witnesses. Luke 16 verses 19. It was the rich, rich man and Lazarus. Here we see that both the rich man, both the beggar Lazarus and the rich man, are at their locations, dead in the body, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The poor man's with that, and the rich man is able to see over the abyss and into heaven. So we know the guy is in hell. Solitary confinement, darkness, absent from God, no hope, total, total despair, an eternal despair of never being able to correct the problem as he cries out to God, correct the problem. Give me a drop of water on my lips. But he'd already made his choice. The problem with death, guys, is it seals the fate. And so he spends his eternity in hell. Absent from God, gnashing of the teeth, and with fire. They say, is it really fire? Well, as a Christian, I hope it is fire, because if it's not fire, it's something worse. There's a damnation we can can conceive of. They say, well, listen, when I go to hell, I'll just go down and be with my old buddies, and we'll just pick that back up. No, you're going to be in solitary confinement. You won't see anybody. You'll see nothing for eternity, absent from any contact. Torture. No hope. The despair has got to be beyond my comprehension of what you would go through. Well, let me tell you that in the process of time, four great fables have grown up about death. And I'd like to try to review them with you. First fable is purgatory. Purgatory is a word that did not even exist in any language until the 5th century. It is a word that cannot be found or any allusion to it in the New Testament. It's not, it is ungrounded scripturally. It was a tradition, and the church will tell you it's a tradition, that was brought about in the 5th century to raise money for the, uh, the work of the uh, crusades to, to, to fund the armies to go back to fight. Purgatory is a fable. It is non-existent. How ludicrous to believe that I've got to be prayed... Even with the grace of God, I've got to be prayed into heaven that God is not capable of bringing me in. And how ludicrous it is to believe I've got to pay somebody to relieve me from my pain. It is a fable. The second great fable is the sleeping dead fable. And that's your seven-day Adventist. And they basically believe that there is a sleeping dead. That when you die, you will not go to heaven. Absent from the body, present in the body. You'll stay there until the rapture. There is one place in the entire scripture that is stated, and that's in the fourth chapter of uh, First Thessalonians. It totally ignores all of the body of scripture which says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They totally ignore all the other scriptures. But it basically speaks of a situation that you will sleep in your body until Jesus comes back. Which totally goes contrary to the story of Lazarus. Remember, he's dead, He's with, he's in heaven. It goes contrary to Jesus' talk to the man on the cross. It goes contrary to Paul's discussion of absent from the body, present with the Lord. The third great fable is there's no hell. Jehovah Witness says there's no hell. He very delightfully cuts that section of the Bible out. Guys, not only is there a hell discussed in the Old Testament, but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, defined it very clearly that there's a hell. The second, guys, is God is a God... A divine holiness. And a God of mercy, He must must be a God of judgment. And there must be a hell. Your life has consequence. And there must be a hell. No, I don't want a hell. There's no way I want a hell. I don't want my brother to go to hell. I don't want any of you in this room to go to hell. But a divine, just God, there must be a consequence to your actions there must be justice in eternity we don't have justice here there will be justice in eternity and the last one is the fact that Satan runs hell is a fourth great fable guys Satan does not run hell Satan doesn't want to be in hell Satan has no desire to be in hell Satan will be in the bottom rung in hell God runs hell God owns hell God built hell and God's in total control of it. That is God's invention. That is not Satan's. Yeah. I'm said one of the is that there is no hell. Right. And then that, uh, there must be a hell because of No, I didn't say it was a fable. I said that is rationally speaking, there must be hell. I gave the arguments why that can't be true. Yes. And then I'm saying now that the other fable, great fable is Satan runs hell. Satan is a guy with a pitchfork and and red ears and a tail. And he's laughing because he's in control and he's going to get all his buddies and have a big time down in hell. No, Satan doesn't want in hell. Satan is fighting at tooth and toenail. He didn't want down there. You've got to understand that your Lord and Savior runs hell. He understands the consequences in total. He is the runner of hell. In, In Revelations, he says he has the key to death and to Hades. It's clear who runs hell. And it is not Satan. And there's great consequence if you begin to believe otherwise to those things. Guys, there is a hell. There's a consequence to your life. I don't, but I can get it for you. It's in about chapter 4. Chapter 4 or 5, and I'm pretty sure I'm I'm right on top of it. Okay? Four great fatals of hell. Well, where does that leave us? What's God's view of hell? Of death? And I want to tell you, we could talk and talk and talk, but I, I reduced it down to four things that I think is God's view of death that I'd like to pass on to you. I'd like to pass on God's view of death to those who are left behind. And then God's view of death for those who are dying. I want to break it into two groups. I want to say God's view of death for those who are left behind. Rule principle number one. Life is for the living. There is no immortality in life. Guys, this is not the main event. This is a warm-up. This is spring practice. We're on to the big event. You will not build immortality in this earth. You will not do it through inheritances. You will not do it through monuments. You will not do it through books. You will not do it through reputation. You will not build an eternity here on earth. It is for the living. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Let's be about living our life. Love your parents. Love your friends. And when they die be painful because it is loneliness. But the life is for the living because we're preparing to die and be with Jesus. That is, life is for us. It is not for the dead. Secondly, death is a legitimate basis for grief. Joseph grieved. Jesus grieved for those who were grieving. He wouldn't, grieve, he wouldn't cry for Lazarus. Clearly, he said he cried for those who thought Lazarus was dead. He thought that was legitimate. He had no problems with him crying. Grief is a legitimate expression of loneliness. There's never been a tear shed at a funeral that was not a selfish tear. Because it's a tear to my loneliness. It's not a tear to that person. Their, feet is, their fate is sealed. It's done. It's in the hands of the loving God. There's nothing I can do about that. So the two great truths for the reader left behind is land the life is for the living. Let's be about living our life to the fullest so that we can have consequences of our life in heaven. I can't build immortality here. And two, it is legitimate to grieve and to have loneliness. There's a point in our life, I am convinced, where I'll have more on the other side than I do on this side. And will be looking forward to going back and joining my friends. The older you get, the more you get on the other side of the, of the window. It'll be good to see my friends. What are the two truths about death for those who are dying? Psalm 116, verse 15. It is precious to God when the believers die. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Psalm 116, verse 15. Guys, God is happy when you die. Ezekiel 33, 11. There is no pleasure in death. In God, there is no pleasure in death of the wicked. On one side, God is gra- happy when we die, He is unhappy when the wicked die. Why? The the fate is sealed. He is looking forward to us being back. Let me quote it to you again. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Psalm 23. Study that Psalm. Let me make you three observations out of Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, it clearly demonstrates to you that God is with me when I die. That's good news to you. In Psalm 23 it says God, He, God, He, God, He. And then it says, But though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the great guys writing about it in the scriptures have a sense and a presence of Jesus Christ in their presence as they die. Oh, how many stories I've heard of the guys saying, Jesus is in the room with me when he's dying. And guys, I believe that. I believe when I'm at the door. That that door is going to swing open, that hand's gonna come through, and he says, I'm here, Gail. Grace is sufficient for the moment. I'm not abandoning you. The psalmist understood that. The second one is he's glad, he has a celebration in Psalm 23. I put a, prepared repaired a table before you. All right? He's celebrating. He's got his guys back. And listen to this last one. Donald Barnhouse. I got this off Donald Barnhouse. When his wife died, she died of a little agonizing. Bout with cancer. He and his kids, about two days after she died, were driving across the plains of Illinois. And they came up to an intersection where they had to stop with light. And it was a big road intersection. And a truck, a big, big truck, passed in front of them going the other direction in the intersection. And the sun was such that the sun was in their eyes. And therefore, the shadow of the truck was cast on the ground. A shadow ran over his car. And Donald Barnhouse said, it was a divine appointment of God. For I turned to my children and I said, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And the children said, oh, dad, shadows can't hurt you. And he said, that's right. And mother didn't get hit by the truck, she got hit by the shadow. Jesus took the truck. You only get the shadow. Jesus went to the cross and took the truck. We only get the shadow. And I'm going to tell you guys, I sat there and cried when I thought about that. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It is not a moment of mourning with God. He knows the consequences of death. He's on the other side. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's a point of celebration. And the second principle I'll leave with you is that the first act of grace of God is death. Now let's look at the problem. Let's see the problem God has and how he solves it. Now listen to me, this is important. Adam is in the, in the garden, and God comes to Adam and says to Adam, Now Adam, it's all yours. Babe, you've got it. i only got one rule, and you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not the tree of life, he didn't say that. He said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Surely, unless you do that, surely you will die. Now that had to be an interesting thing with Adam. He didn't seen anything die. He didn't even know what it meant. Trees didn't die, dogs didn't die, birds didn't die, nothing died. It was in perfect heaven. Everything was going along perfectly. But it had to be a curiosity to him because when he was born, there's no recorded event that God ever gave that same command to Eve, but when they're at the, at the tree, boy, Eve's able to give it back, isn't she? So they must have been talking about that. And this, Satan says to him, what happens if you eat the tree? And she said, well, God said, if I eat of the tree of knowledge good and evil, I will surely die. We know the consequences. They ate the tree. They ate of the tree. Now, God comes on the scene and finds them. And God's decision is this. And listen to this. His decision is this. Not to have them eat the tree of death, but to not let them eat the tree of life. And I want to say to you guys, that was an act of grace. That was an act of grace. Why? Here's reason one. Today, Gail Jackson, 50 years of age, Christian for 18 years committed deeply committed to the word of God has a depraved mind I am locked into a depraved mind I'm locked into a degenerating body what an unbelievable hell it would be if I live forever in this body and with this mind I must be rescued and if I enter the tree of life I would live with this piece of junk from now on and guys, I want to tell you, that talk that Walt gave you last night, I'm not that far from it at any time. My mind is that close to it at any time. By the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, I'm checked. But I want to tell you, he talks about adultery and stuff, guys, I'm not that far. I know I'm not that far from it. Why? The depraved mind I'm locked into it. I can't get out of it. When they hit the tree of good and knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil, they took on a depraved mind that you and I inherited, and we can't get rid of it. And God comes on the scene and says, Because I love you. In my grace, I am going to let you die. Because, listen, because I've got a better plan, and that plan is Jesus. Because I'm going to give you a new body, and a new mind, and a new presence, and a new hope. The first act of grace of God is that he let us die. And on top of that, he's glad when we die. What did Jesus do? He came on the earth and said, I am the right plan. I'm the plan you've been waiting for. And that plan says, understand that God loves you. That God has a plan for your life. And that you have problems with the depraved mind, And you have a problem with what we call sin. And you are struggling with it. But I died for that forgiveness. So you can have a relationship to God. So the most important decision you make in life about what's going to happen to me when I die is answered it accomplished; it is solved in a perfect solution. That I'll be with God, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, some of you in this room today have never made that decision. Some of you in this room today are not sure about that decision. Some of you in this room today, if we walked out and all got killed, are going to go to hell, and that concerns me. On one side, to you that are believing, I got great news for you guys. On the other side, I got deep concerns. And I want to take just a moment and stop us and just think about that for a second. And I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads in a moment. We're not going to have hand raising or anything of that nature. I just want us to think on that. And I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you have at that point that you've never made that decision and you've never accepted God's answer to the single greatest question of your life, take this moment and see if this is the moment between you and God and the Holy Spirit that you want to decide that. And you pray between you and God And if you pray that prayer, you may want to talk to myself. I'll be around here. I'd love to do that. But I'm going to just ask you all to bow your heads and I'm going to pray a prayer. And if any of this prayer is for you guys, then I want you to pray it along with me. Will you do that? Let's just bow our heads. God, at first, I'd just like to say we thank you for your solution. And if there's anyone out there today, God, that has his heart ready to receive you, I pray that you will clear his mind and calm his heart instill his fears and his anxieties and let him just focus on you and prepare his heart to pray this prayer that you would have him pray if you feel this is your time I just encourage you to pray this prayer after me God I thank you for Jesus I thank you you gave us Jesus who died for our sins so that I could have eternal life with you thank you dear God that you have solved the problem of death, and that I can live eternity with you. Now, if any of you prayed that prayer, just hold that prayer with you as I pray, God, check Satan from them. If anybody prayed that prayer, God hold Satan back from them. That they'd have a chance to find their relationship with you and to you. And that they would have a chance to get into the body and that you would build them up strong, that we could all be in celebration with you in heaven. For precious in the sight of you in your sight, God is the death of the saints. Amen. Let me read one last verse to you. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must be put on incorruption, and the mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption, and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what Paul concludes. Listen to this. What Paul concludes. Therefore, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Ties of anything we come to grips with. Let's make our time in the temporal count to the eternal. Amen? Amen.